This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you today uh, on this Saturday morning. I was looking over some of my notes, and uh, as we prepare for this uh, 42nd consecutive program, in terms of early on in the pandemic, I talked a lot about offense and defense. And since we're getting ready for football playoffs, I thought it was time we reviewed where we are in this battle against the COVID-19 virus. The first thing you learn in sports is to always respect your adversary. And clearly, the COVID-19 virus has been our adversary, but I'm not so sure we've had enough respect for it. But the numbers show that we should. We have over 415,000 Americans dead from the COVID-19 virus. We're well on our way to 500,000 dead Americans. We're now dealing with the new variant. In Arizona, they're saying that one in seven new cases is in a child. So previously we thought, well, it doesn't affect children, thank God. Well, this new variant does. It affects children under the age of 12. So we need to have respect for our opponent. Now, until now, we've been paying all defense. And when we let's talk about defense, right? Because it's like football. When you get an offense, that doesn't mean you forget about your defense. The defense is identification isolation contact tracing we talk about it a lot here identification is testing 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 we're a year into this battle and we still don't have point of care testing point of care testing is just what it says it's testing you can do and get a result right at the point where you give care so some of you may have been to the hospital where, well, point of care testing, perfect. Example is checking your blood sugar, right? You're able to do a fingerprint, put your blood there, put it into the machine. It tells you what your blood sugar is. That's what point of care testing, a pregnancy test, okay, um, that a woman would use. Point of care testing. You do the test, you get the result. <clears throat> it's baffling to me why we don't have that type of testing now. And that is the gold standard. So just imagine that you could test yourself several times a week in your home. Um, children going to school can test. So you have to reach the point where you can identify the virus. Where is your enemy? Where are they? Where is it? What, are the, what is it doing? So the testing becomes so important for us to get control in the battle. And I believe the federal government needs to take a lead on getting this. 
we still have people waiting in line for hours, waiting days to get results. <clears throat> that is not acceptable. Isolation. So there have been a, many, a lot of ways we've looked at isolation, right? A lot of people have said, well, I don't want to be locked down. I'm tired of being in my house. Well, you isolate the virus by using a mask. And every week we're getting more and more information about masks. I talked a little bit in the last two weeks about the Mayo Clinic study stating that if someone has the virus, as long as they're wearing an appropriate mask and wearing it properly, the virus cannot spread to someone else in the room who is also wearing a mask. The percentage is 0.05% opportunity for it to spread. So it's important to use masks. What else have we learned? We've learned that the N95 mask is really the best mask. And that's because it has these electrostatic fibers in it. It's what you wear in the hospital. It's what I wear when I'm seeing patients. The fact that we still don't have enough of these masks, again, baffles me. Just baffles me. We should have been producing and should be producing these masks. I understand with the Defense Production Act, President Biden will get these numbers up. So if you isolate the virus by having a mask, and one of the other rules I've learned this week is the more layers, the better. So if you have an N95 mask, putting a surgical mask over it is key. Using cloth masks, well, the more layers, the better. So again, having masks and making them mandatory because it's clear that we've not gotten it in this country. We have made masks a political issue. It should not be a political issue. It is a health issue. It's a health issue on our defensive side of the equation. And contact tracing, again, obviously, someone gets the virus. Who did they have contact with? Let's start testing those people as quickly as possible so we know where the virus is. Let's move over to the offense, because now we have an offense. Right? We have a vaccine. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about the vaccine, especially with my guest today, Dr. Saeed Hussein from St. Francis. He is the chief clinical officer for Trinity Health of New England. We're going to talk about the vaccine because we had so many questions about the vaccine that I keep getting emails on. But so the vaccine has provided us some offense. Treatment. We've talked about treatments, monoclonal antibodies, okay, like our former president got when he got sick. Those are available. Convalescent plasma, where people have donated their plasma after getting COVID-19 and being able to use that. But here's what we really need. We need a medication that's an antiviral that works for COVID-19. So... Much like you have an antibiotic that kills a bacteria, we have antiviral medications. That is why people are not dying of HIV anymore, right? So the HIV example and the program that was put together for HIV led to people being able to take an antiviral lifelong and live a normal life. What we need for this virus is an antiviral medication that you would take for seven to 10 days, like an antibiotic that kills the virus. Work is being done on that. 
but that's going to be key. That is your key to your offense. But the vaccine, as I mentioned, is going to be absolutely crucial to this because that avoids anybody from getting the virus so you don't have to treat it. But we have to remember that increased exposure, increased mutation. Now, one of the things that we're just hearing about that's going to need to be addressed is the post-acute infection syndrome. And that's where people who have had COVID and continue to have symptoms weeks and months after recovery. Symptoms like headache, intermittent fevers, muscle aches, fatigue. There's GI symptoms. The so-called brain fog, where they're not thinking as clearly. So this virus is going to last with people because it does alter cells. It alters how we function. And that's one of the questions that came up that I'm going to address. But the point is, we're going to be living with the effects of this a long time. We have people who have what is called, you know, post-Lyme disease, right, here in Connecticut. People still have symptoms of Lyme disease long after the bacteria is gone. So we're going to have to work with this, and it's going to be part of our health care system. Apropos, January 23rd, 1953, this day in medicine, Dr. Jonas Salk reported the successful preliminary results for a new oral polio vaccine. You know, and one of the things that's key is when he developed that, it took such a long time because they had to grow the virus and then inactivate the virus. So we're going to talk a little bit in our next segment about how that has changed and why we're able to develop vaccines so much more quickly. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with Healthy Rounds. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Dr. And in this segment, I'll be happy to take questions at 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. You can reach me anytime during the week at info at alessimd.com. So many of the questions I've gotten center around the fact that people are hesitant with this vaccine because they think it was rushed or developed quickly. As I mentioned right before the break, in the past, you had to grow the virus, typically in eggs, and then you had to deactivate the virus in order to use it as part of the vaccine. We don't use the virus as part of the vaccine anymore. And in this new messenger RNA technology, it has not been quickly put together. What we have done, as I've explained in the past, is we've created a chassis, a structure, a platform that you can alter based on the type of infection you're trying to avoid, the vaccine you want to create. The new technology for SARS and COVID-19 started in 2003 when we had SARS-CoV-1, as you'll remember. So Pfizer... Uh, the CDC, or rather the NIH, 
and the University of Pennsylvania were working on a vaccine for COVID-1 when COVID-2 came out. So we had a real head start on putting this vaccine together. So it brings me to one of the questions I had this week, which I thought was great. Uh, one of our listeners said he had a coworker uh, who doesn't want to get the vaccine. Um, and basically he felt it's taken years to develop uh, other vaccines like the flu shot. And the flu shot just adds antibodies to your body and attacks the virus. His fear is that the COVID-19 vaccine um, will uh, not only develop antibodies, but it will get into your cells. So uh, let's back up a little bit, and I think it's important that we uh, talk about this. As I mentioned, the new messenger RNA vaccines uh, certainly have taken a while to develop, and I think we've addressed that. Um, you have a platform, and you change things. But I think the other issue is, and here's the misinformation here that your coworker has, is that it's the virus that enters your cells. Don't forget, a virus cannot live independently. It's not a living thing. So it needs a host. So when it gets into your body, it attaches to a cell by these so-called spike proteins. And the spike proteins essentially tear open the cell and let the virus inject its contents into your cells, now replicating into your cells. So it's the virus that gets into your cells, and that's why we're so concerned that the virus will alter your genetics and cause these long-term symptoms. The vaccine doesn't go into the cell. Much like the flu vaccine, it creates antibodies against the spike protein, the thing, the dagger that goes into your cell, that is what it is attacking, thus making it very difficult for it to enter your cell and impossible. And without a host, without a cell, the virus dies. We're going to take a question. We have Rich in Westfield who's on the line uh, with a question about the vaccine. Rich, you're on. Hello. Uh, well, uh, really, your comment about uh, preventative medicines or the possibility of them. After I get done, uh, if you happen to know what the current J&J, uh, &J, Johnson & Johnson uh, medication is that they're attempting to get approval for, I think that's a preventative medicine. I think uh, Johnson & Johnson is hopefully about to be coming out with a preventative medicine. But that would be after <clears throat> I'm done. The other thing I would like to say is, I would be interested, and I can't believe it hasn't been done by now, uh, if all of the warehouses and uh, retail stores that either store or sell chlorine, if the employees, the people who are there on a regular basis, have been tested, if any of them have ever been tested positive for COVID, I'm willing to bet that the answer would be zero, not. And... Um, uh, bleach is made from chlorine, is it not? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Uh, that's why I'm curious as to why you think that in terms of well, uh, are they really washing with it? That was being promoted way back sure. in the beginning was made sure. from chlorine uh, sure. and or bleach. And yeah. uh, then it got poo-pooed and pushed to the back and as a preventative. Great question. It, Great question. Well, I'm 71 years of age and... Uh, 71, uh, 71 is the new 41, believe me, if you're in reasonably 
good health. So I'm not old, but I am 71. For the past year, uh, approximately, uh, and I don't recommend anyone do this. I'm not a doctor. I'm just telling you what I have been doing. And I've tested negative for COVID twice since uh, October. Um, uh, is uh, every now and then I'll take the Clorox bleach bottle and I'll shake it up and I'll take the cap off and just give a whiff. Just just breathe it. Breathe, just take a, a whiff of it, hold it in for a, f- a few seconds and let it out and do it one more time. And um, I've been COVID free. And uh, that's what that's, I do. I'm not going to say okay. I think everyone should do it. but no, I don't think anyone should do it. Actually, well, Rich. Why not? So, it, it, well, because inhaling high doses of chlorine is toxic to your nasal passages. But we're going to disconnect, and then uh, and I'll address both of your questions, only because we, we get a little confused. But listen, thank you for the call. I think that's a great point. You've raised some interesting points. So um, with regard to uh, chlorine, uh, bleach we felt was uh, great for people washing. So in Haiti, at the mission where I work, at St. Luke Foundation, uh, we've been issuing people little baggies of chlorine to mix with water so they could wash their hands. What we subsequently found out is that the virus itself is very vulnerable to not just chlorine but any soap, even just really warm water. So this is not a very resistant virus. Now, chlorine, something you have in a swimming pool, um, you know, in various amounts, like anything else, will kill a virus. Inhaling large doses of chlorine, like people who, right, some people drank chlorine and thought this was going to be a good way of purifying their bodies, only did damage to themselves. Inhaling chlorine is an irritant. Anybody who owns a swimming pool, right, who's worked around chlorine and had to put those tablets in the water, and all of a sudden you get this kind of whiff of it, it, you start sneezing and coughing. So let me urge everyone that that is not a good plan. Okay, We don't need that um, right now. Um, And I think that the Johnson & Johnson issue, Johnson & Johnson has been working on a vaccine. Um, I do not have any any indication that uh, they have uh, worked on a treatment as of now. But that may be the case, um, and the caller may have some other information other than that. Uh, But again, I, I warn everybody to not just start with the home remedies. I think we're past that. Um, the infrared light and and things uh, such as that. Um, Another thing that comes up is, okay, how safe am I with the vaccine? And people have asked this all the time. Can I go to a meeting? So say people at work, we're all in in a meeting, and can we all meet without a mask? And the answer is yes. But the problem is that you could still transmit the virus. This is what we think right now is that you could still have the virus in your nose and transmit it to others who can go home and transmit it to others who have not had the vaccine. So that's why even if you have had the vaccine and you have sufficient immunity, you should still be wearing a mask. And uh, with that, 
Uh, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back and answer more of questions uh, with my guest today, Dr. Saeed Hussein. Dr. Hussein is the Chief Clinical Officer at Trinity Health of New England. He's been a, a frequent guest on our show in the past, and we're going to talk to him about many of the things about the vaccine rollout over at St. Francis um, and Mercy Hospital, uh, bed, bed status, um, supply and demand. The other, the other question that I get all the time is, when is it my turn? All right. How will I know when it's my time to get the vaccine? We're going to talk a little bit more about pregnant and breastfeeding, a lot of the questions that keep coming up. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it gives me great pleasure to introduce my guest today, Dr. Saeed Hussein. Dr. Hussein is a medical doctor. He is the chief clinical officer for Trinity Health of New England. He's been a guest on our program before and always brings great information for us from Trinity Health of New England. Saeed, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dr. Alessi. So. It's great to have you back. Uh, can you give us a little update on St. Francis Hospital in particular in terms of things like bed status, ICU status? You know, we hear all the time, we're looking at the TV and looking at California where they have, uh, you know, portable morgues, beds everywhere. They're at 200% of ICU capacity. Uh, I'm not hearing that here in Connecticut. Um, what's it like at St. Francis? So we did, the last several weeks were uh, busy uh, from a COVID perspective, but the good thing here is, you know, Connecticut, I give a lot of credit to Connecticut residents, people living in this region, because we we know what, what needs to be done to keep COVID levels down. We've done it all through the summer. And so I give a lot of uh, kudos to, to, to residents here for following public health measures, which allowed us to take care of both COVID and non-COVID patients in a safe setting in our hospitals. Thank goodness we never reached that stage where some uh, states in the country, unfortunately, don't have any beds. We do have plan. We did make plans, though, in case it ever reached that point of how we would convert alternative uh, areas in the hospital to take care of patients, but it never came to that. In fact, one thing I'd like to point out to folks is we're just a few percentage points in terms of how busy we've been uh, this uh, last these last few weeks compared to last year flu season what's really what's really been different this year um, is flu has been minimal uh, uh, across the country so that's helped now we've had numbers much higher from an inpatient setting due to COVID but it almost balances out at least in this region that is tremendous and would you agree that it's primarily because we've been washing our hands more and using masks absolutely and physical distancing we need to keep reiterating as the months go by now um, in the months to come it's important it's critically important we continue those measures we we uh, we see the light at the end of the tunnel in terms of the vaccine but until it's rolled out to the rest of the country on a, a much larger scale and more people get vaccinated it's important we stick to those public health measures because we will end this pandemic say so let's get to the uh, let's get to the point everybody has questions about the vaccine rollout can you tell us the plan for Trinity Health of New England in terms of the rollout? 
Absolutely. So we started with phase 1A a few weeks ago. As uh, um, your listeners may know, we're now in phase 1B, tier 1, which basically means we're now vaccinating healthcare workers, long-term facility residents, as well as 75 and above. Very soon, um, I believe we will go to the next tier within phase 1B. Um, healthcare systems across Connecticut receive weekly allocation of vaccine. Just so that um, listeners understand, to put things into perspective, we're receiving a little under 50,000 doses a week for the state of Connecticut. And phase 1B alone, the denominator is close to 1.5 million residents. So that's why it's critically important that folks continue to practice those public health measures. But also, we really appreciate everybody's patience, because this will take several weeks, if not months, before we have enough vaccine to get around to everybody. But I am confident, and Trinity Health of New England has done its part to not only use up all the weekly allocation, but also to be able to provide vaccine uh, to everybody, whoever wants to roll their sleeve up and get vaccinated eventually. I think that's such an important. So despite the fact that there's more demand than supply, uh, you've been able to meet your goals in terms of those who are in 1A and want the vaccine. Absolutely. In fact, Connecticut is among the top five states in the country in terms of number of people vaccinated as well as using up the allocation. So you've probably heard states that um, have used up 50, 60 percent of their allocation, but they still have vaccines sitting around. We don't have that problem here. We're actually ready to expand. We're ready to go into the community and, and open up new vaccine clinics. The only rate limiting step for Trinity Health of New England at this time is supply of vaccine. Uh, the other question that comes up nationally, and I'm not hearing it as much here in Connecticut, uh, is having the availability of vaccinators. Um, so people who have licenses, physicians, um, uh, nurses, and others who can give uh, the vaccine. Uh, has that been an issue for you at Trinity Health? No, actually, it has not been an issue. We are We are blessed have had such an amazing response from community organizations, from our academic partners, such as Quinnipiac University, medical students, nursing students who are volunteering their time, clinical faculty, for retired docs and nurses who've all lined up to say, we want to help you guys out. So it's been tremendous. Um, I guess one of the questions that always comes up to me, it, it, when is it my turn? So we know that you've already addressed 1A, we're into 1B being... Um, 75 and older, but um, people are sitting home saying, all right, when is it my turn and how will I know it's my turn? So that's a great question. So again, I reiterate that we appreciate everybody's patience and folks need to be patient. But if you go to trinityhealthofne.org or you go to ct.gov slash COVID vaccine, that's your source of truth for understanding which phase we're in now. It takes several weeks, uh, Dr. Alessi, before we move on to the next phase for a number of reasons, because we ha there's a large number of people that need to be vaccinated. So logistics related to that, but also, more importantly, supply of vaccine. Now, we're really encouraged with the new administration's focus, rightly so, on the pandemic, on vaccine manufacturing, ramping that capability up because we're, Trinity Health is on board with masking for 100 days as well as um, 100 million uh, doses within 100 days. So uh, some uh, hospitals have used the MyChart app. I know you use that app uh, for patients uh, at your hospital, and they've used that as a way of notifying people. 
Is that something you're doing as well um, to let uh, patients know that they now qualify or can make an appointment? So Trinity Health of New England is the largest system in the region that is using a number of avenues so that we can capture and offer our services, vaccination services, to as many people as possible. So those folks that are registered with us, our members of Trinity Health of New England Medical Group will receive that notification and will have the ability to schedule an appointment through MyCare. However, if you're not uh, um, a patient, you can still sign up. You go to trinityhealthofne.org and click on, once you get to the vaccine page, you click on VAMS. VAMS is the Vaccine Administration Management System. It's an easy tool. It asks a few questions. You, you complete that questionnaire, hit submit, and then you will get an invite to register and schedule an appointment at one of Trinity Health of New England's vaccine clinics. We have four vaccine clinics in Connecticut, one in Massachusetts. So we, we partner with the state on uh, VAM so that it's open to anybody who is w- not within the Trinity network as well. Where do people go? Where You said you have uh, community clinics, but um, specifically, where are you distributing the vaccine? Um, I, I'm sure at the hospital itself, at St. Francis and at Mercy, but uh, what other places can people, will people be going to, or are they going to get the vaccine? Sure. So St. Francis Hospital is home to our largest vaccine clinic. We also have vaccine clinics at Johnson Memorial Hospital in Stafford Springs, St. Mary's Hospital in Waterbury, and Mercy Medical Center in Springfield, in addition to another location for the medical group in Prospect Waterbury area. Okay. We're going to take a short break. Then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Saeed Hussein, the Chief Clinical Officer for Trinity Health of New England. Um, we've got questions uh, about the vaccine, what's coming in terms of vaccine, and I have a few questions from listeners um, that I want to pose to Dr. Hussein. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, with my guest today, Dr. Saeed Hussein from Trinity Health of New England. Well, Saeed, uh, Caitlin Rochelot over at uh, St. Francis, your very capable public relations expert, sent me over the direct link of trinityhealthofne.org forward slash appointment, and that'll bring folks directly to making an appointment um, so we can get that out there. Uh, Saeed, I'm going to give you a clinical scenario. Are you ready for this one? Sure. All right. So we have a regular listener who, who texts me and who emails me regularly, and, and I know this is on her mind, and it's on a lot of people's minds. So if you have a loved one who is in a nursing home and you've not been able to visit with them because of the pandemic, right? You've had these visits through a glass. But thinking of this, if if you are vaccinated and you know you're adequately vaccinated, uh, you've had you've had the antibodies and your loved one is also been vaccinated. Can you go to the nursing home and visit with them under the situation that you wear a mask? Um, your your loved one wears a mask until you get into a private room with them. Can you hug your loved one? Because I think that's what people really want to do. Would that be safe to do? Eventually, once we reach a stage where folks have been vaccinated with both doses, they've waited two weeks after the second dose, I believe we will get to that point. 
My only concern with this scenario is, remember, this vaccine is very effective, but it's not 100%. It's 95%. Granted, it did prevent clinical, severe clinical disease in individuals, but also a note that I remind folks is, out of the pandemic, the most impacted have been the elderly above the age of 75. They've, they've had the lion's share, unfortunately, of mortality and severe, de- severe disease. So ultimately, I believe we will reach that stage, but we're not quite there yet. Okay. All right. I wanted to clarify that. Another question I get often is regarding pregnancy and breastfeeding. Should a pregnant woman or a woman who is breastfeeding receive the vaccine? Great question. So let's look at the facts. So it is true, pregnant women and breastfeeding women, per standard protocol, were not included in either the Pfizer or the Moderna studies. But I'd like to um, remind listeners or mention to listeners two, two different buckets. One, let's look at the uh, facts from this pandemic related to the virus. So we know when pregnant women come down with severe COVID-19 disease, they're five times more likely to end up either intubated or in the ICU compared to a non-female, non-pregnant, excuse me, female in the uh, same age group. They're also likely to have preterm birth. They're also likely there's a higher chance of them not making it with a higher mortality. Um, but if you look at the vaccine bucket, this is not both Moderna and Pfizer are not live vaccines. So theoretically, there's no risk for the uh, uh, vaccine to cross the placenta into the fetus. Uh, Moderna, when studied in rats, gestational rats, um, didn't really have any abnormal developmental abnormalities that were seen. Um, one thing related to the Pfizer vaccine I'd like to point out, there were women of childbearing age that were included in the study. 23 of them, in fact, did become pregnant. One lost a baby, but that was in the placebo arm, not the vaccine arm. So the CDC and other uh, national medical organizations do recommend if it's your turn to roll up your sleeve and you happen to be pregnant or breastfeeding, you may choose to get the vaccine. Okay, that's great information. Here's something very basic. I guess, and, and people must be asking themselves, who pays for this uh, when you get the vaccine? Is somebody going to send you a bill? Um, no, there's there's no bill associated with the with the vaccine. Is the that vaccine just is, here in Connecticut, or is that nationally? That's na- nationwide. Okay, all right. I want people to understand that because I think it's it's pretty basic. Next question is about the Moderna or the Pfizer vaccine, and. Um, I know this has happened to at least several people and, and someone in my family. They've gotten the, Moder- the first dose of Moderna, okay, but the second visit is not scheduled back for five weeks instead of four weeks. Um, is that acceptable? So, the C- so that's an interesting scenario. The CDC did come out with a revised regulation, uh, I believe, yesterday, which allows in exceptional circumstances to extend that period for up to six weeks. We still would like folks to continue doing the four weeks for Moderna and three-week interval for Pfizer. But in exceptional circumstances, yes, it may be extended for up to six weeks. Because this was through the Veterans Administration, the VA, which has obviously been uh, very busy. So uh, I gathered it was from from that uh, specifically. All right, here's the other one. Um, I had this come up this week, uh, and I was meeting with uh, several people. And people say, well, I already had COVID. Why do I need this vaccine? I should be protected. Um, 
can you emphasize for people why they still need the vaccine? Absolutely, because we've seen reports of reinfection. We also know natural immunity from COVID-19 disease is variable. It varies from individual to individual. So there's no guarantee that the natural immunity will, will last for a long period of time. It is critically important that those folks who've had COVID-19, once they're out of the acute phase, their symptoms have resolved, they don't need to isolate any longer, they are candidates for getting the vaccine. And it's important for all of us to reach herd immunity and put, the, put an end to this pandemic. Everybody gets vaccinated. In the and here's something everybody's worried about. They're they're worried about the safety of the vaccine itself. And uh, I've not heard of and and I've, I'll tap onto your experience of people having any severe side effects to the vaccine itself. Have you had any situations where someone got the vaccine and needed to be hospitalized? I mean, we've had people with. Uh, anaphylactic reactions that have been subsided with, uh, obviously, with epinephrine. Uh, but have you seen any severe side effects to the, the vaccine? So we have not seen any uh, individuals that have come down with severe side effects. We have not seen anybody who required hospitalization following the vaccine. Uh, remember now there are millions of people who have received one, if not both, doses across this nation. Both studies from Moderna and Pfizer showed an incredible safety record for the period of time that they we were able to analyze data. A lot of people ask me or tell me that they're going to wait to see what the quote-unquote long-term side effects are. And I remind people that long-term side effects, especially when it comes to vaccines, are seen within six to eight weeks of vaccine administration. That's why the FDA asked both Moderna and Pfizer and indeed others to, in, the, in, in the near future to provide data for a minimum of eight weeks after vaccine uh, administration so we can look at any safety events. And there weren't any safety events. Yes, there were uh, mild to moderate side effects that resolved within 24 to 48 hours, but no serious safety events. The question people should be asking are, what are the side effects and long-term effects of getting the virus, which we know uh, can be quite severe, uh, especially when it involves death? Um, Absolutely. The, the next one uh, is, is one that comes up in terms of people who are immunosuppressed or taking immunosuppression drugs. Many people who have arthritis are taking um, immunosuppressants, maybe some weekly methotrexate or something of that nature. Um, are they in any danger? So it is true that these individuals were generally not, we don't have safety or efficacy data related to immunocompromised individuals or those on immunosuppressive therapy from either the Moderna or Pfizer study. But we also know that these individuals are particularly high risk for severe COVID disease. So the CDC recommends in, the, in this uh, special population, there's a risk benefit decision and an informed decision that they need to make. Um, uh, so I encourage folks to have a discussion with their physicians. But when it comes to if it's their turn to raise their hand to get the vaccine, the CDC recommends they may get vaccinated. Uh, I guess one of my other questions, I guess, uh, along those lines is, uh, is if someone is immunosuppressed, will they get enough benefit from the vaccine itself? That's one of the theoretical concerns that they will not may not mount um, a strong enough uh, immune response, because that's the whole uh, premise 
basis of the vaccine. But we will learn more about how the vaccine behaves. But keep in mind, there were people with um, immunocompromised conditions who were included in the studies, both Moderna and Pfizer. And we we saw we know we all know what the uh, results are with with the rate being so effective at 95 percent for both of them. I guess my last question is, in parting, is what's the one message you really want to get out to people and our listeners in Connecticut? Um, on behalf of Trinity Health of New England, what's the one takeaway people need to have regarding this terrible disease? These are safe vaccines. When it's your turn, please get vaccinated. Trinity Health of New England will be happy to vaccinate you. And in the meantime, please stick to public health measures. So we can keep our COVID-19 case, cases uh, low and go back to where we were during the summer period, where we were among the lowest in the nation. Dr. Saeed Hussein, thank you. Thank you again for sharing your time with us here. And thanks for all you're doing over at Trinity Health of New England uh, to keep uh, our citizens safe. Thank you very safe. much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Um, that was uh, great and, and great information. I think we've hit most of uh, the questions that have uh, come up. And if you have more questions for me, you can email them over to me at info at alessimd.com. You can also get today's podcast, um, the Healthy Rounds podcast, wherever you get your podcasts at radio.com or Apple. Um, next week, we're going to be spending more time talking about the vaccine. There are so many questions that come up. And I think now that we're hearing more and more about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and the AstraZeneca vaccine, um, there are, there's talk that these are just one injection. They don't need to be stored in really low temperatures. And also the fact that these may also prevent you from spreading it, which is something we really want to get to if we're going to defeat this virus. So many thanks to our studio producer today, Joey Burgoyne's been on the board. Uh, Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. And as I said, next week we're going to be talking more about uh, the vaccine itself and its overall health implications to our community. Next up on WTIC is Garden Talk with Len. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and Yukon Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.